Well, we now turn to God's word, and as we do so, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the tremendous privilege we have to have your word before us, the word that you have revealed to us, that we might know you, that we might trust you, and that we might be saved to have eternal life with you. I pray now as we open your word and we see your son revealed, that you would give us teachable hearts, give us humble hearts, and ultimately, would you give us joyful hearts as we see our Savior here in, this, in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it's unfortunate, but many quote-unquote Christians today particularly in the West, and maybe I should say particularly in uh, American Christianity, have what we might call a domesticated Jesus. A Jesus who is stripped down to size, kind of better fits our mode of life. A Jesus who is simplified, easy to understand, and palatable to modern ears. He's only a Jesus who simply just gives you a hug when you need it. Or a Jesus who just shows you the right path to walk. Now, these ideas of Jesus comforting us or giving us a moral path to walk are not wrong in and of themselves. But those descriptions do not exhaust what is true of Jesus. And as we read Scripture cover to cover individually, and as we gather together to work our way through the Scriptures, uh, and in particularly, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke here together Uh, We have to deal with every aspect of who Jesus is, every aspect that the Scriptures reveal to us. We can't skip over sections. We need to see all that the Scriptures reveal about our Savior. And this is one of the benefits of expository preaching, of, of going verse by verse. We are then forced to deal with everything the Bible says. We can't just jump around to the passages that we like. We need to go verse by verse by verse and see what the Bible has to say. In this case, what it has to say about Jesus. As we come to this passage this morning in Luke's gospel, it gives us a portrait of Jesus that we rarely see. It pulls back the curtain to show us the God-man agonizing in prayer before the cross. Up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus as a man who's been resolute on his way to the cross. Resolute to go towards what he knows his life is destined towards. We've seen a man who has gone with courage towards that fatal fate. He's been bold. He's been resolved. He's been undeterred by opposition and by attacks. And we're wowed by the strength of this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, as he marches toward the cross. But in our passage today, the scene changes and we get a different side of Jesus, you might say. And so I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word, if you're not there already, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. Luke 22, in verse 39. And as you're turning there, just as a way of background and context, when we last left Jesus, He was in the upper room with His disciples. 
There in that upper room, they had just celebrated the Last Supper. They had just had their last meal together, the last Passover, and Jesus had instituted what we know as communion or the Lord's table. But you can imagine like a movie where you have one scene and then it fades to black and then it fades in again and in someplace else. So too, here in the gospel narrative, the scene of the upper room fades to black and then it opens again and the scene has changed. When it opens, we see a man just distant away from us. And instead of standing courageously, he's on his knees. It's the middle of the night. He's in deep anguish, sweat pouring from his brow. We see him all alone in the black of night, praying passionately. And we lean in because we want to hear what's going on. What is he saying? And once we do, we realize that we are listening to something supernatural. And so with that, let's read our passage this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths on each one of our hearts this morning. The bishop of the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, said this of this passage. He said, it is a passage of Scripture which we should always approach with peculiar reverence. The history which it records is one of the deep things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus should come across our minds. Put off thy shoes from thy feet. The place whereon thou standest is holy ground. In this text, we brush up against things that we can't fully understand or explain. And yet its truths are too wonderful for us to fathom. And so as we meditate and go through this passage this morning, I believe that there are two primary ways for us to respond from what we see here. Two primary ways for you and I to respond this morning as we meditate upon what we see of Jesus here. And the first way that we need to respond as we read this text is, number one, to heed Jesus' instruction. We need to heed Jesus' instruction that we see twice in this text. And so you can't read this paragraph without noticing this command from the lips of Jesus to his disciples given twice, both verse 40 and verse 46. They serve as bookends of this, this paragraph. 
And while this command had specific relevance for the disciples that night, it also has something for us as well. For we are Jesus' disciples too, are we not? And so let's begin by seeing how Luke sets the scene for us in, in verse 39 before we look at this command, this instruction. Again, previously they'd been in the upper room celebrating the Last Supper. But now it says he left that place and his disciples followed him. It says he went to the Mount of Olives. This was a common destination. We've already seen it in the Gospel of Luke. He mentioned at the end of the last chapter, chapter 21, that Jesus regularly went to the Mount of Olives, especially during this Passion Week, and that's where they spent the night for each night. The Mount of Olives was a ridge to the east of Jerusalem, and on the lower slopes of this ridge, near the Kidron Valley, was a garden. Now, not a vegetable garden like we might have in our backyards, uh, tilled soil where uh, plants were harvesting veggies, all the rest. It's more of like an olive grove, a place where olives were harvested, an olive orchard, you could say. And according to John, in John 18, 1, this is where they went. John 18, 1 says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And this garden, we know from Matthew and Mark, is Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And it's here uh, that is this garden on the, on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. And in fact, there's still an ancient olive grove there today. And so first I have a, uh, a map here to show you. Um, and uh, just to get your, your bearings here, in the top of the photo is a big square. That's the temple. At the bottom, you can see the arrow there, the upper room where they uh, most likely uh, celebrated the, the Last Supper was there in the upper room. Uh, there's a place you can go and visit today. Um, but then they left. They went out the, the lower gate in the photo, which is the Essene Gate, and dropped down into the Hinnom Valley and went all the way down to the Kidron Valley, which in the photo is to the right, marched up the Kidron Valley, and then uh, from there started climbing the slopes just a bit to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the top of the photo, top of that, that drawing there. And then I have some photos from uh, the region. And uh, the first is a photo from the air looking at the Temple Mount. And then in the distance, you can see uh, the circle there is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is then on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. And in between the Temple Mount, the temple and the wall there, uh, and the Gethsemane is the Kidron Valley. The next photo is one that's an older one taken in the 1890s, <clears throat> but it is on uh, just outside the, the walls of Jerusalem, looking down the, across the Kidron Valley to uh, Gethsemane, and then you can see the slopes of the Mount of Olives going up from there. And finally, a photo of an ancient olive tree that is in the garden there today, you can see the girth of that uh, olive trunk is, uh, is quite, uh, not mangled, but just a, this tree that has grown over thousands of years. And, uh, and ma there's many of these there in this garden today that you can even visit. And, uh, and so we, we know from archaeological evidence, we know from documentary evidence of this garden and where it was there um, across from the temple and across the Kidron Valley. 
You'll notice in verse 31 that Luke tells us that it was his custom to go to this garden. He would regularly go to the spot to pray, or as we've learned, even to sleep. And John tells us that this custom, this regular practice of Jesus going to this garden was why Judas would be able to find Jesus. John 18 verse 2 says, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so just picturing Jesus knows that he sent Judas out of the upper room. He then teaches his disciples Judas has to go identify it to the Jewish authorities that he is ready to betray Jesus. He knows where he's at. They then have to go get Roman soldiers and be able to go and arrest Jesus. All of that takes some time. Jesus is, as it were, watching the clock, so to speak. And so he's in the upper room for a certain amount of time. And then he says, rise, let us go from here at the end of John 14. They get up, they begin to make their way in that map that I showed you on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's teaching them as they go. And now he knows, as he lands in Gethsemane, that Judas can't be far behind. In fact, there's, there's probably about an hour until Judas arrives with soldiers. And so Jesus is eager for this one-hour window to spend time with his father. And when they arrived, Jesus leaves his disciples and then he goes on further. Verse 40 says, And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Verse 41, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Now Matthew, Mark, and Matthew and Mark give us some more detail to this, to this event. If you read the book of Luke only, you get the impression that Jesus came, he dropped the disciples off, then he went off, prayed, and came back, and that's it. But in Matthew and Mark, there's actually three rounds of this. Jesus leaves his disciples, goes and prays, and comes back, finds them sleeping, wakes them up again, and leaves and prays again, and he does that three times. Luke, for brevity's sake, abbreviates the account. But not only were there three rounds of, of prayer and finding the disciples sleeping, but there were also a, uh, not just the disciples and Jesus, there was actually three different groups. There was eight disciples, and then Matthew and Mark tell us that he took the three, Peter, James, and John, and went on a little bit farther, and then dropped them off, and then Jesus went on a little bit farther from there. Again, this is by harmonizing these accounts together. They don't contradict, they simply choose the details they want to relay as they're recounting the narrative. Now, Luke tells us in verse 40 that he instructed the disciples to pray. And let's look at what he, he instructs them to pray. He says, verse 40, pray that, they, that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this command, this exhortation and instruction is found only in Luke twice. The other gospels have it recorded once, but here Luke has it recorded twice, both verse 40 and verse 46. And so this tells us that this command coming from the mouth of Jesus was very important for Luke as he was pulling together his narrative. He wanted his readers to pay attention to this, for them to not miss this important instruction from the lips of our Savior. He realized that this command, I believe, was important for the discipleship of every reader of his gospel. And so, I, and so that 
speaks to us this morning that we need to pay attention to this command as well. We can't miss this repeated instruction. This word is for us as much as it was for the disciples on that night. Again, as Jesus knows, they're just moments away from Roman soldiers coming and the events happening very quickly leading to the cross. About an hour is left. And so he, in, the, in this small window, has a concern for the disciples' well-being. He knows that this will be a trial that will test the disciples' faith unlike anything else. Their loyalty to him will be tested, as we saw last time. And so he gives them this urgent instruction. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, I believe this exhortation is connected to what we saw last time in verses 31 through 34, where he said to to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And as we said in that exposition, the you there in verse 31 is plural. In other words, Simon, Satan demanded to have all of you, to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus knows there is this trial coming. His concern is for them. Satan was desiring to sift them like wheat. And now the trial is upon them. The hour has come. Satan is there to torment the disciples, to attack them, to tempt them in some way. He's active. He's roaming through the garden, seeking that night to devour those men. And so Jesus exhorts them and warns them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew records his words with an added exhortation saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. And I believe together this reveals the two sides of the same coin, watching and praying. They go together. You can't have the one without the other. You can't say that you were watching but not praying, and you can't say that you were praying without watching. In these commands, Jesus is calling for, on the one hand, spiritual vigilance, and on the other hand, spiritual dependence. Spiritual vigilance and spiritual dependence. They need to be aware of the imminent danger, and they need to be depending on God in order to fight the battle that lies before them. They cannot be lax, they cannot sleep. They must be spiritually awake and actively praying for God to protect them. They will not make it through this trial without the Lord's strength. And so Jesus exhorts them to throw themselves upon the Lord, to pray, to plead, to ask that God would work on their behalf. And yet what does Jesus find them doing? Let's go down to verse 45. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. Sleeping for sorrow. Again, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus goes back to the disciples three times and finds them sleeping each time. Three times he tries to get his disciples to watch and to pray, to be alert, to pray with him. And three times he finds them asleep. Again, Luke has an abbreviated account, but he's the only one to say that they we're sleeping for sorrow. He's the only one that gives them the reason for their sleeping. Sleeping for sorrow. And let's try to put ourselves in the disciples' feet just for a moment. 
Remember that they have been with Jesus three and a half years. There's been great excitement. The crowds have thronged around this man, and they have seen things that they never thought possible. They truly believe that this man is the divine Son of God. And yet, they have uh, then entered and traveled all the way to Jerusalem, and beginning on Sunday, they saw the crowds go to him as, as, and hail him as the king as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. But then began a very intense week, sleeping on the Mount of Olives or in Bethany, just over the mount, at their friend Lazarus' house. They, Jesus was then in battle, in, in sparring with his religious opponents, the religious leaders. And so now, here they are, Thursday night turning into Friday, and they're exhausted. They are physically at their end. But more than that, they are sensing that this great leader Messiah is not ushering in the great victorious kingdom. They sense that the Jesus' enemies are circling and closing in for the kill. This tension has been rising, and so it's probably at this point has sunk in at some level that the Messiah that they have been following will meet some sort of end soon. Again, the, the, the contrast between just a few months ago and the crescendo of Jesus' popularity to now here in the middle of the night in a garden just outside Jerusalem, their hearts are weighed down. The dream has died. They are sad. They are disappointed. They are dejected. Again, it's probably past midnight at this point, early Friday morning. They're tired and they're exhausted. And so naturally, they fall asleep. That's what probably any of us in those same circumstances naturally would have done. And yet, it is precisely at this point that they are most vulnerable and most susceptible to spiritual failure. That is at this point of exhaustion it is at this point of sorrow, it is at this point of a downcast spirit that they are most spiritually vulnerable to spiritual failure. And Satan knows this. He's mounting his attack for their weakest moment. But of course, Jesus knows this too, and so he exhorts them to pray. He exhorts them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. Now, let's look closer at this exhortation and what it means for us today. His exhortation here is similar to something we've heard from the mouth of Jesus before, right? In the Lord's Prayer, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. He's asking, teaching us to pray, to ask that we not enter into temptation, that we not be led into temptation. And, and so I believe when Jesus says to pray that we would not enter into temptation, he is saying that we should pray that we would not believe the lie of temptation. Because you see, temptations are a fact of life. I don't believe Jesus here is exhorting us to pray for a temptation-free life. In other words, God, please make sure there is no temptations that ever go my way. That is not part of what living on in this fallen world is like. We experience temptations all the time, all around us. Those can be expected. 
But what Jesus is praying, having us to pray for is that we would not follow into the snare of temptation. Yes, temptation is going to be around us, but we need to pray by God's power that we not, would not enter into it, that we would not go through it. It's as if Jesus is saying that the door of temptation will be presented to us. And we need to pray that by God's power, we would not turn that doorknob and go into that door. Now, to not enter the door of temptation will require these two things that I mentioned earlier, vigilance and dependence. And let's look at those two here briefly. First, there's a need for vigilance, a need for vigilance. We must be alert to temptations for temptations to sin. And the Bible regularly exhorts us to be watchful, to be awake, to stay awake. And this is not necessarily that we don't sleep. Obviously, each, each night we need our sleep. God made us to be dependent upon sleep. But this is to be awake morally, to be awake spiritually, to be spiritually sensitive, to be alert. The alertness you could uh, describe as, a, think of a, 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 an army sentry who's posted to stay awake at night while his, while his fellow soldiers sleep, and he's listening for any sound in the brush, any sound of an approaching enemy. His senses are all at level 10. He is listening for every little move, any sign of the approaching enemy. That is the kind of alertness we need to have as believers listening and paying attention to where the enemy might attack. Where is sin trying to get in the door? Where is it that the enemy is trying to attack us? It's a few reasons that we need to have this vigilance. One is that the enemy is active. As we've already seen on this night, Satan is active. Jesus knew that. That's why he said Satan was wanting to sift you like wheat. But Satan is active in our world today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says this. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. We need vigilance. We need to be watchful. We need to be sober-minded, as Peter says, because we, there is an active enemy that is out there. We talked about this last week, that we cannot go around and thinking that there is no enemy, that we uh, go, go through life unopposed. No, Satan is, the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So why do we need vigilance? Why do we need to have that alertness of a century? Because there's an enemy out there, and he's active, looking to take us down. The second reason we need vigilance is because sin is egregious. Sin is egregious. And oh, we need to be reminded of this in our day. It is so easy for us to downplay the seriousness of sin. We think, oh, it's just a mistake. It's just a little mess up. God will forgive me. But friends, we've got to remind ourselves of what the Scripture says about the holiness of God, about His standard of perfection and how far short we fall. None of us meet the standard. All of us fall short, and sin is a violation of God's law, God's holy and perfect law. Sin 
Its allure is attractive, but its effect is deadly. Sin is sugar-coated poison. It tastes good at the first, but then it goes down to kill. Sin is utterly awful. It is deceitful, and it desires to kill us spiritually. And you can see that if sin's not a big deal to us, if it's not that big of a, a deal that we, that we sin against God, then we are not going to care that we enter into temptation. We're not going to see it's that big a deal that we need to be vigilant. If, if what the enemy is enticing us to do isn't that bad, then we will kind of welcome it and figure we'll just go on with life. But we need to be vigilant because sin is serious, it's egregious. The third reason we need to be vigilant is because our flesh is weak. Friends, each and every one of us is susceptible to giving in to temptation. All of us are weak in our flesh. None of us have the strength to stand on our own. We can easily be deceived by sin. We believe the lie that we can stand and we can resist on our own, but it's not true. And I think there's something here from the the account that we have before us to remind us that you and I are, and, and really all people, are most susceptible to sin and to temptation when we are physically weak and tired. Isn't that true? Have you found that in your own life? That when you're physically depleted, and this could be at the end of the day, that you've just had a long, hard, tiring day, that you're most uh, susceptible to giving in to temptation and committing sin, thinking about yourself and pleasing yourself. But this could also be at the end of a season of days and months and years where you've been worn down, where the stress of life and, and you're weary and you don't feel like fighting anymore. You don't feel like giving in. You don't really care about temptation or about if you sin. Our physical weakness can lead to spiritual weakness. As was the case of the disciples, physical lethargy can lead to spiritual lethargy. And so we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard particularly when we feel physically weak, but at all times. And again, we see this in uh, throughout the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, say, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. We cannot get, Paul says, we can't get drunk at night. We can't believe that we participate as children of the night, that we are like children of the world. We have been set free. Our eyes have been opened, and now that we have the Holy Spirit within us, we've got to live with spiritual vigilance, listening and watching, seeking to live according to God's word. Not get lulled into the things of this world that we would suddenly find ourselves drifting to sleep. Drifting to sleep spiritually. Carrying on with our lives. Going about our occupations and, and, and our entertainments and all these things without any sort of care for vigilance. It must not be so. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's a vigilance, a sober-mindedness, a recognition of where we stand in this life. 
That we are not in going, simply hopping and skipping down the yellow brick road as if everything's hunky-dory. No, we are in a world of battle and of opposition spiritually. And so we must be alert. We must be watching for where the enemy attacks. And so I ask you to think about where do you need to be more vigilant? Where do you need, where have you let the guard down? Where have you stopped paying attention? Where have you been giving in to temptation? Where has sin crept in the door and you have fallen? Believer, let this text be a warning to you and a wake-up call to you. That you wake from your slumber, that you seek to be sober-minded, that you live with a heart for Christ, that you live spiritually vigilant for His glory. But there's a second thing, a second need for us, not only vigilance, but we also need dependence. Jesus exhorts us to pray because we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to continue to fight temptation. We must cry out to God. Our prayers, as John Piper has said, is simply our limp wire raised to heaven, hoping to catch the lightning bolt of heaven. We want his power. And so we pray and we say, Lord, please answer. Please, by your spirit, work in my life. What we can see, at least from this account, believer, is that Jesus exhorts us to pray and then he models prayer. Does he not? He says, pray. And then what does he go and do? He goes and drops to his knees and prays. If the Son of God could not Endure could not go forward without prayer and depending upon his Father. Why would we think that we're any different or that we're, any, that we're stronger? We need God to strengthen us as Jesus did. Oh, it's painful to think in my own life and in the lives of others how many spiritual battles have been lost simply because of lack of prayer. We have not prayed. We receive not because we ask not, James says, James chapter 4. And so we simply plow on ahead. We feel the whisper of temptation. Our heart begins to be lured away. We begin thinking and meditating on other things, on sin, and we get pulled into these things, and we don't think of dropping to our knees at all. We don't think of crying out, oh, Lord, please help me in this moment. I am weak. Our illusion of strength causes us to march in towards sin. And most of the time, why don't we pray? Why don't we cry out to God? It's because we're not being vigilant. Again, a, thinking of, a, of, a, of an army sentry who is there to be watching for the enemy, he's not going to cry out, he's not going to announce this invading force or cry out for reinforcement if he's sleeping on duty. He's got to be vigilant. But if he is vigilant and watching, then as soon as the enemy's there, he's going to be crying out. And that's what should be the case in our spiritual lives as well. That we're vigilant, we're watching, and then we can cry out for help. And when we're watchful and we're sober-minded, church, we're going to realize all that we have in Christ, all the protection that we need is found in Him. And so we remain spiritually prepared and ready to take on temptation by meditating upon the Scriptures. I think of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
You could cross-reference this with Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul goes into a lengthy explanation of the believer's armor that we have in Christ. And the point is this, in order for us to be sober-minded, in order for us to remain protected in this day and age against sin and temptation and the devil, we must look to the Scriptures and see all that we have in Christ. Because it tells us who Jesus is for us. Because of our faith and love in Christ, we are protected by Him. Because He has saved us, we are protected from, against the enemy. And so you and I protect ourselves by going to the Scriptures, reminding ourselves of what we have in Jesus, and putting on those truths as armor. The truth of our salvation, the truth of our faith and love. And so I ask you, are you being watchful? Are you being vigilant? Are you praying that God would help you, keep you from entering into temptation? Are you praying that he would keep you faithful to Christ? Because the promise of the word of God is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is that with every temptation there is a way of escape. One of the lies of the devil is that this temptation is too strong and there's only one way to get out of it and it's to give in. The word of God says that's false. With every temptation, there is a way of escape. Will we ask God to help us take that escape? And so as we look at this text, the first response we must have to it is we must heed Jesus' instruction to pray. To pray that we would not enter into temptation. It's repeated. It's important. But there's a second response we need to have. And that is we must hallow Jesus' submission. Hallow Jesus' submission. In these verses, verses 41 to 44, we come to the inner sanctum of the text. This is the Holy of Holies. And so the word hallow means to revere as holy, means to show great respect and honor. Here we see our Savior in the garden. And the only proper response we have to see this man kneeling upon the ground is one of reverence, of worship, and honor that we would revere as holy. Verse 41 says that he's left his disciples. Look at it with me. He says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. He wants to be alone at this point. Stones throw, a casual throw away, some yard, some distance, enough for him to be by himself. And he kneels down and prays. The other gospel writer says that he falls to the ground. Another one says that he falls on his face. And so you get this, this image of Jesus dropping to his knees and then his face falling right to the ground. I mean, he essentially loses all strength as he collapses there to his knees. There's desperation there's weakness. I believe at this moment, Jesus is at his weakest moment. And he's desperate to speak to his father in the midst of that. And as we eavesdrop on this prayer, we come face to face with mystery. Look at what he prays in verse 42. It says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's several things in this text that I want to draw your attention to. And the first is the drinking of the cup. The drinking of the cup. 
Here we see that Jesus, the beloved Son of God, asks his Father to remove this cup from him. That is the core of his request. He's got some other things that we'll talk about, but the core of his request in prayer is remove this cup from me. What is this cup? What does he want removed? Well, with the Old Testament as a strong background for this, we can say confidently that the cup is the wrath of God against human sin. To, to back up this point, let me, let me uh, want to consider the following passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8 says, For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. The cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin. And so Jesus understood that as here he is just hours away from the cross, that there upon the cross he would drink the cup of God's wrath for humanity's sin. You see, Jesus' crucifixion was not uh, just a moral example of self-sacrifice. It was a substitutionary atonement where Jesus took our place and he drained the cup of God's wrath that each one of us deserved. And so it is here in Gethsemane that we see the seriousness and the gravity of our sin. We see the perfect Son of God agonizing over the cup that he must drink. This sin that must be imputed to him, that must be placed on his back, that he must then experience the wrath of Almighty God upon him because of this sin that he did not commit, but he willingly took upon himself in order to accomplish the mission that his father had sent him to do. If we ever doubt the gravity of our sin, let us look to Gethsemane and see what our Savior experienced during the, the cross narrative, we see the physical suffering that he endured, but here we see the spiritual suffering. Because his agony and his struggle here is not, I would argue, the prospect of physical pain. He is not asking, oh God, please help me not go through this painful experience in terms of his physical body. No, he, it is the prospect of being forsaken by the Father that most weighs him down. And we can't even understand this. But he, for all of eternity past, has enjoyed perfect, blissful communion with his Father. Nothing standing in the way. Nothing marring that relationship. There was never sin or misunderstanding. And yet now he recognizes that he is about to go forward with this in which the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him and is going to stand between him and his Father. And so just the thought 
of that weight of sin presses Jesus to the ground. He's almost undone by the weight of bearing the wrath of God. And yet this was necessary. There is no salvation apart from Jesus bearing this wrath. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that for our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In this dark hour in which we see Jesus burdened by the weight of sin and the wrath that he must endure, we see the good news of the gospel. Because unless someone stands in our place and takes this wrath for us, each one of us must experience that wrath. We each must pay for our own sins unless someone takes our place. And here we see the one who was willing to do that. And not just willing, but went forward with it. Jesus was made to be sin because he had to bear the wrath. He had to be punished as if he was that sinner, those sinners. You see, on the cross, Jesus was judged like he was the greatest sinner to ever live. Not just as if he were one of us committing the greatest sins, but remember the sins of the world were heaped upon him. And so all at the same time, he was treated as if he was the worst rapist, murderer, and child molester. He was judged like he had committed genocide, suicide, infanticide. The anger of God was poured upon him as if he was the worst liar, adulterer, thief, drunkard, adulterer, or slanderer all in one. He was treated as the worst sinner. And when you think of all of that piled into one person... Can you think of the wrath and anger of Almighty God against such a one? Jesus felt every ounce of that anger. He would drink the last drop of the cup of God's wrath, which is why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looks at that cup. And he asks his father if it's possible, if there's any other way that the salvation that he wants to accomplish can be accomplished. Do I have to drink the cup? Is there anything else? Now we, we read that and we go, wait a minute. How can the Son of God be asking to change the plans? I thought he and the Father were totally unified. I thought he marched boldly to the cross because he knew that's what he had to do. Was his desires different from his father's? Did he not really want to go to the cross? And this leads us to a second aspect for us to look at here, and that is the wills of Christ. Jesus is the only person to have two natures at the same time. He had a divine nature and a human nature, you and I only have one nature. We have a human nature. But Jesus had two natures. How did that work? We don't know. He was, you could say, 100% man, 100% God, or truly man, truly God, but he had these two natures. And with these two natures came two wills, two desires of action, a human will and a divine will. And they always worked in concert with one another. And yet he, was not, he wasn't like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. One time he's like, oh, human nature. Another side, oh, divine nature. And there's like this battle between the two. They never blended together. They never conflicted each other. And this is really important. 
In fact, in AD 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, believers got together to try to carefully think through these two natures of Jesus, and they stated that Jesus existed with two natures that were inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably existing in Christ. This meant these two natures can't be mixed into a third new substance. They can't be changed so that the divine nature never changes to be anything other than the divine nature, and the human nature never changes from anything other than the human nature. And yet they're indivisible and inseparable. You can't, like, pick them apart. How does that all work together? Behold, it's mystery, but it's true. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying these words, we have a moment where his human will seems to be in tension with his divine will. And Jesus would rather have not experienced the wrath of God, if it were at all possible, he says. He would rather have not been forsaken. And he wondered if there's any other way to accomplish this salvation. And so he asked his father for an alternative. This truly baffles our mind. And I want to tap on the late theologian R.C. Sproul to help us wade into these deep theological waters. And he writes this. It's an extended quote, but I think it's helpful. He writes, The depths of that mystery is more than I can comprehend. This was not sin in the sense that Jesus rejected the will of the Father because he remained willing to do whatever it was the Father willed. Rather, Jesus was not willing in the sense that he was hoping against hope that another way could be found for him to fulfill his mission in this world. He, in his agony, on his knees, asked, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. All things being equal... Jesus, in his humanity, didn't want to do this, but he understood the will of his Father and hastened to add, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It is still my will, O Father, to do whatever it is you will, whatever it is you want me to do, but please, if there is any way, take this cup from me. As Sproul said, this is a mystery we cannot comprehend, but we revere our Lord. For while he desires for a different way, which we can understand, he is ultimately submitted to his father's desires, and he remains on course. And so that brings us to the third aspect of this text I want us to see, and that is the submission of Christ. We've seen the drinking of the cup, the wills of Christ, now the submission of Christ. Jesus showed in the garden that his desire to obey his father won out over his desire for a different path. We see the request, right? There in the heart of the prayer, remove this cup from me. But sandwiched on either side of it is a, is a confession and an and a obedience to his Father's will. If you are willing, he says, remove this cup from me. If you are willing. Oh, and only if you are willing, Father. This, I believe, emphasizes Jesus' submission. He is willing to do whatever his father wants. And this is the prime example of submission to God. You see, submission to God is easy when it falls in line with what we want. It's hard when it goes against what we want. And yet Jesus here happily goes where he doesn't want to go. He happily goes where his father wants him to go. And in that is his greatest delight. And this is an example to all of us. 
We can certainly bring our requests before God. We can pray for everything or bring our desires before Him. But at the end of the day, we must be able to say, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some of you here this morning know the right thing that God is calling you to do, but you're resisting it. Others of you have received a bitter pill. You've circumstances have gone in a direction that you don't like. And if it were up to you, you would script it differently. You want it done your way. We all come across these circumstances in our lives, and we must learn to say with our Savior, nevertheless, my, not my will, but yours be done. But here we see the Son of God praying to the Father, and we simply need to worship. Worship a Savior who recognized what was before him, and he bowed in submission to his father. We need to hallow this submission. We need to love it. We need to revere it. We need to respect it. We need to honor it. Because in his submission, friends, is our salvation. Well, there's a fourth and final aspect I want to draw your attention to in this text. And that is the strengthening of Christ. The strengthening of Christ. And we see this in verses 43 and 44. Now, for some of your translations, you may see these verses in brackets. Um, these brackets are put there by the translators. Um, and in some other translations, like the ESV that I'm preaching from, has a footnote after the end of verse 44. And uh, this is because in some early manuscripts, there is, these verses are not found. Uh, you, we go to these early manuscripts, and they don't have these two verses. And so there's uh, a lot of trees killed and ink spilled are trying to discuss these two verses, uh, to which I will simply say this morning, without getting into the details, I believe there's enough evidence to cautiously mark these as authentic. And I, I believe they are, they are recognized by scholars to be the, the right style of Luke, and they des describe the experience of our Lord as he labored there in prayer before the cross. In particular, what these verses reveal is, first of all, in verse 43, that an angel came from heaven to minister to Jesus. It says to strengthen him. And here, I believe we see that the Father dispatched an angel. Jesus is praying to his Father. He's in great agony, and the Father sends an angel to help him. He was strengthened. But notice that after the strengthening, did the prayer get any easier? Look in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. His praying only intensified. He went through great agony as he prayed, and it became so intense that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, some take this to mean that he, his praying was so intense that the capillaries in his head burst and caused blood to be mixed in with his sweat. And that is possible. But others see this simply as a metaphor. You see the word like in here, like great drops of blood. And I believe that that is a, a key word for us to understand there. So I tend to take this as a metaphorical description that the sweat, he was sweating so profusely and so heavily that it was like blood was dripping from his head and falling to the ground. But whichever way you go, the point is, is that Jesus' inner agony was so intense that it resulted in an observable physiological response. The stress of his heart, in other words, translated into the stress of his body in prayer. He's not even, he hasn't felt one whip of, uh, one lash of the whip. He hasn't felt one nail yet. And yet his body is deeply affected. 
And what we take away from this as we see our Savior in agony and prayer is that we see the extent of the love of Christ for sinners. Let's pull back and recognize that Jesus didn't have to go through any of this. He chose this course. He didn't. He could have lived in blissful heaven. And yet, he's here enduring agony for you and for me. And again, we need to be clear that if we don't trust Christ, each of us deserve to experience the wrath of God forever in hell. We will have to experience the agony that Jesus went through if we don't trust him. But the good news is that we can trust Jesus and he will take the agony for us. He will take the wrath. And friends, that is the invitation, the offer that is to everyone everywhere. Is if you will trust in Jesus today, your sins will be forgiven. And God will credit the sacrifice of Jesus to your account. And over your account, over all your list of sins, he'll stamp paid in full. That is the good news of the gospel that we see Jesus agonizing over here. He took the wrath so that we can have the life. Let us not neglect to see the love of our Savior here. And so we need to heed Jesus' instruction. We also need to hallow Jesus' submission. And we need to drop to our knees in gratitude and thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. And so as the worship team comes forward, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text before us that reminds us of what Jesus did on our behalf. And Lord, we are convicted that we do not even understand all that went on in that garden on that night. And yet, we feel like the disciples. We are sheepish when we recognize how much we have fallen asleep. Our lack of vigilance, our lack of dependence upon you. And yet, Father, we come confidently before you, not because we have been the great Christians, but because we know a great Savior. A Savior who forgives us all our faults. A Savior who paid for all of our sins at Calvary. I pray this morning that if there are any here, Lord, who have not trusted Christ, who continue to trust in their own works, oh Lord, may you cause them to get a sense of the realness of your wrath against them, that they might flee to the cross of Christ. They might flee to Jesus, trusting him and finding forgiveness. It's in his mighty name we pray, amen.